a special Bridget and Caitlin Have Opinions edition of Bella Footman's Curse. I'm Bridget. I'm the one who refused to make any predictions in the World Cup. And I'm Caitlin. In the World Cup postmortem episode, I'm the one who called Pepe a bitch, just for some context. We're coming to you pre-recorded from opposite sides of the Atlantic Ocean. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about women football fans. Obviously, this is still Julian and Steve's podcast, but I think quite appropriately, we have been handed the reins for this episode because of our firsthand experience as women fans. We're going to depart a bit from the standard style of Bella Footman's Curse. Um, while standard fare is to talk about the mechanics and the history of the beautiful game, this episode is more thematic and sort of sociological or anthropological. We're talking about the culture that surrounds football rather than football itself. And I would like to open with a story. This past September, Manchester City brought out two of its oldest supporters as mascots for a match against Fulham. This was a pair of sisters, Olga Hallen, who was 97, and Vera Cohen, who was 102. Vera had been attending Manchester City matches regularly for 85 years. So what this means is that women fans have been around for a very long time. But at the same time, most of us have to spend half of our conversations about football proving that we know how the offside rule works, which we do. That leads us into the first part of our discussion, perceptions around fandom and the stereotypes and assumptions around women and men and football. So I think there's this basic assumption that football is for men. I found that in pretty much all the reading I've done on the subject, and I've kind of seen that firsthand myself. Um, Caroline Dunn, whose PhD thesis is titled The Experience of Female Football Fans in England, notes that even Nick Hornby, a middle-class lefty modern man, quote, explains his fandom as a quick fix of masculinity, end quote. Uh, you know, that honestly, that doesn't surprise me, and I don't just mean kind of in broad terms, but actually especially for a lefty modern man. I think that, I mean, this is something that's come up a lot um, and kind of manifested itself almost violently in our culture a couple of times, that there's this dearth of male-only space right and especially for men in that mm -hmm. kind of that leftist position um, so I can see wanting to rely on something that's seen as more classically masculine like sports honestly you know I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that uh, except when it actually starts to harm or undermine women there are apparently historical reasons for it too um, I read this MA thesis from about 2000 um, author's name is Alexander Lim and he found that in the 19th century, football was seen as supporting a kind of honorable manliness, and it was encouraged among the working class because it was thought to reduce drunkenness and general loutishness. Well, that's ironic. Well, yeah. And Dunn also connects um, sort of the growth of football in the 19th century to the idea of muscular Christianity, and it was even used by preachers to evangelize. It's interesting. I think, I've, I mean, I don't think at this point it's arguable that sport isn't connected to larger things, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that you see that a lot in terms of nationalism, in terms of, of, of identity, right? And kind of and national identity and cultural and ethnic identity. I mean, that, get, that got played out in the World Cup this past summer. I oh, know yeah. that, uh, like, well, my, um, some of my background academically is in uh, Ireland, in Northern Ireland in particular, and I do know that in the club system there, it broke down because the pitch kind of it became a battlefield um, for the more aggressive sectarian violence to take place. And, and the thing about this too is that significantly this is pre-Troubles, like I'm talking 40s and 50s, not to get overly Marxist, but that idea of kind of like, you know, the, the, the suppressed anger of the working class coming out of sectarian violence, it manifested itself on the pitch, right? In the 40s and 50s. Okay, so I guess then football has been connected to different varieties of manliness, sort of there's the, the idea of like sportsman-like behavior being an ideal for men and caring about the sport instead of spending your, your money and your time at the pub, and then uh, drawing that out to this other kind of violence um, so there's been this connection between these things and football for a long time and women don't really have an equivalent to that. So there's a historical reason and there are cultural reasons why these things are happening. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we want it to continue like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's also the, the flip side of this is sort of set of assumptions and the stereotypes that women don't understand football or that women don't like football. More, what troubles me more is that women don't understand football, that idea, because women don't like football. You can just demonstrate 
sort of the opposite by being present and knowing things. <laughs> yeah. There is a general surprise, actually, when I mention that I like football. And there's even more surprise when I say something intelligent about it. Oh, yeah. Well, my guess would be that that's more common for you living in England because uh, soccer or football is so much a part of the culture there in a way that it is not here, right? Uh, I think here, yeah. when you find somebody who likes soccer, oftentimes you're just excited to find somebody who likes soccer, or that's been my experience yeah. largely. <laughs> right and so it doesn't divide itself down gender lines quite as obviously here I think actually probably going back to what we were talking about before there because it's soccer and it doesn't have that larger history in Canada and North America in general I'm um, obviously excluding Mexico and Central America when I say that um, that there isn't it's not wrapped up in our identity the same way the same way yeah. that liking hockey would be or the same way that liking American football would be or something like that um, yeah. although I do know um, and I go to Central America and uh, and the Caribbean not uncommonly for my work, so almost every year I go. And I know that's been something that's been kind of interesting. I was down there for the Euros. I was in the Dominican Republic for the Euros a couple of years ago, and my colleague knows absolutely nothing about soccer, um, but is a man. And uh, and so it was something that came up periodically where, actually, we were in a bar in uh, Santo Domingo and uh, we were watching. Oh, I think it was when Wales was just going way farther than anybody expected them to. And my Spanish at the time wasn't very good. Uh, and what's well, still not fantastic, to be honest. But, but the server actually came up to us and, and joked that, uh, oh, she's being very patient with you, basically, to... Um, uh, to Cooper and uh, my colleague and, and, and he translated it and I was like, no, 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 no. So, uh, but at the same time, actually, one of the things that I did in, in Latin America and Panama more particularly, because uh, baseball is much bigger than Dominican, is I got, um, the kind of, it's a mochilla, it's a particular kind of backpack, and I actually got one that had uh, the Barcelona crest on the back. Oh, yeah. Because it kind, of, it kind of established a certain kind of cultural legitimacy and, and a conversation with people in <laughs> Panama <laughs> in a way that I wouldn't have been able to establish otherwise. But, but it's funny because I mean, I actually, I don't support Barcelona, but it was just kind of, it was more of a, it was a more kind of an in intentional thing, right? As opposed to this is actually my team. But even so with that, it was kind of this thing of like, oh, look at the cute woman with her Barcelona bag mm. as opposed to she must actually be a fan because you know you can sit there in the pub you can sit there and watch the the thing but then they're gonna always ask you well do you understand the offside rule <laughs> oh fucking offside where the hell did that come from and why won't it die well it's interesting actually because I know we've talked about this before the offside rule is easy to understand but difficult to explain because it's kind of it can, can be kind of confusing but actually the point that you made Bridget was that uh, it's not difficult to explain people aren't explaining it clearly did I make that point it sounds I don't know, that sounds more like something you'd say. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't understand it because it's this whole thing, this stereotype that women don't understand offside. And it's just, it's just so straightforward. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like this idea that women don't understand offside because it's a throwaway line, it's like comparable to those, those cultural stereotypes like after the war, no one knew how to eat bananas. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that? It's the idea that after rationing ended and people started having bananas, little kids would be given bananas and they wouldn't know how to eat them because they'd never seen it before, which I've heard in so many different primary sources in so many different countries. Mm -hmm. So it's like this like symbolic thing, women don't understand offside. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it must be being maintained somehow because the truth of it seems too weird for me. It's like the idea that women talk a lot or men like beer, you know, those sort of sexist stereotypes that you see on sitcoms. That kind of thing. Yeah, well, like unexamined statements, basically, right? That these kind of cultural tropes that, oh, yes, of course, that's the way it is. Uh, and Yeah, trope, that's the word I was looking for. Well, and the thing is, is that and I think with, with that, you see things that are can be quite harmful and quite obviously harmful in our culture, right? Uh, but something like mm -hmm. women don't understand the offside rule in England is kind of a joke that isn't that serious, but does undermine female football fans. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call it like a microaggression, because it's, it's not, it's, it's, harmless in that sense but just this perpetual idea that women don't understand the offside rule like it's it's symbolic metaphor for a whole bunch of other things mm -hmm. that we're going to get onto in a minute i think uh it's maybe about time for our first break all right we'll be back
All right, so in the previous section, we talked about uh, perceptions of female soccer fans, women's soccer fans, and in this section, we're gonna be talking a little bit about kind of what the reality uh, of women's soccer fans is, and also the reality of, of soccer for women in general. Uh, now, Bridget is the queen of statistics, so we're gonna talk <laughs> a little bit about that first. Okay, well, I did a bit of reading around this because I had my ideas about these things, but I wanted to make sure that I, I could back it up. Um, so I've read Soccernomics um, by Simon Cooper and Stefan Szymanski, and they report that since the 1990s, football fandom has increasingly included women. But they also note that very little analytical work has been done on spectatorship in general. Mm. However, women is an index category in the book, which kind of implies that we're a variable rather than a constant. And there are a total of four pages listed that have anything to do with us. To give you an idea of what that means in the larger book, there are four pages listed in the single male fan category, Nick Hornby, as well as a whole chapter devoted to Hornby's style of fandom. Mm, okay, oh yeah, that's like when women authors became a section on Wikipedia, but male authors was not. We're kind of like exotic birds, I guess, when it comes to soccer. Yeah, like we're the exception rather than the rule, and the male fan is the rule. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to try and uh, back this up with statistics. For some historical comparison over the last two decades or so, The Guardian reported in February 2000 that, quote, more women than ever before are attending football matches, end quote. At that time, a recent survey had reported that 14% of Premier League spectators were women that 33% of fans who had started watching in the previous five years were women. And they also reported that 50% of new season ticket holders at Leeds United were women, just the, the club alone. Mm -hmm. Now, the picture has changed a little bit since then. The official Premier League season review for 2014-2015 reports that 26% of Premier League audiences that year were female and 16% support a Premier League club, so they are vocally supportive of a specific club. Well, what are the other 10% doing then? Hanging around? Going with their boyfriends. Well, we're going to talk about that later. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, so, so that's 2014-2015. Um, I found another statistic from uh, Statista, which is a massive online international statistical database that covers so many different subjects. I found there, they had a graph that was comparing several European countries in terms of gender and supporting football or following football. And 2016, 33% of UK respondents to a survey asking whether they followed football were female. That's 33%. This is the lowest percentage recorded or the lowest percentage reported in that specific study. And it's shared with France. So France also only 33% were mm -hmm. women. In Spain, it was slightly higher, 40% were women. The most female audience was 41% in Russia. So there's some variation between um, different countries. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, 40% is, I mean, that is nearing 50%, right? I, I find that interesting though, that the country, or though the country split is, because I mean, 7% is statistically quite significant, right? And mm -hmm. I also know that, I mean, I can't really account for, well, I don't really know what the culture of, of soccer in Spain is kind of on the ground. Uh, but I do know uh, that in the UK, it is, as we've alluded to a couple of times, it is a very kind of male thing, right? And it, has, it mm -hmm. has traditionally been a very, very masculine thing. So from that perspective, it doesn't surprise me that the UK would have um, a lower um, a lower female percentage simply because it is something that's been very, very culturally male dominated in that country. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, um, these are different questions whether you attend a match or whether you follow the sport at all. Mm -hmm. No, actually, well, that makes sense because I know, because I wonder to a certain extent, because this is all about going to matches, as you say, and I wonder how much of that is whether or not women are interested and how much is whether or not women feel comfortable going to matches, right? I know that a friend of mine uh, talked about going to El Clasico uh, at uh, Barcelona and she and her friends actually left early simply because they were scared because um, yeah. the atmosphere of violence was such that they didn't want to stay. Uh, which I know is that kind of atmosphere of violence is not uncommon in those kind of big matches, right? Like, you know, El Clasico or like the Manchester Derby or, um, or Madrid Derbies and things like that, right? Um, yeah. But I mean, I also, it's not specifically masculine in the sense that um, men wouldn't permit women to be there, but that kind of that atmosphere of violence that is something that's inherently connected to certain versions of masculinity. Yeah. And if you're measuring legitimacy as attending matches, 
you know, legitimate, like being a legitimate fan, an authentic fan, that's kind of a barrier to women. Because mm -hmm. like if you watch a match from your room or your living room, you can control the atmosphere in which you're watching. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a situation where you, you're not sure where the exits are, you know, because women, we're, we are often on high alert to those things. Well, actually, I was going to say, and especially in a place where you are the minority of the audience, right? I mean, the thing that's interesting with that, too, is that it's not just a barrier to women. It's a barrier to all sorts of people, right? Because, oh, yeah. you know, I've been to some stadiums and they're not very accessible, for example, right? So does that mean that people who have mobility issues aren't as big fans? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge issue. Um, I'm going to mention in a bit Kick It Out, which was started as an anti-racism organization, but they've expanded a little bit to talk about different kinds of diversity in, you know, for creating situations where everyone can enjoy a match. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know, actually, um, that there are different uh, supporter groups, LGBT supporter groups um, for different clubs, um, so that a group can attend together because they feel safer, you know, if they're going to hear homophobic abuse, if there's 25 of them, it's not as frightening yeah. as if there's one. Mm. I mean, there's, there's much harsher penalties for that now than there used to be, and that's, that's just a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so when you talk about the atmosphere, it's not just like physical safety, it's about um, watching a match in a particular way. Um, and I've experienced this myself. Like, for example, when Spain crashed out of the World Cup in 2014, I got a lot of crowing and banter and mockery that I felt was awful. Like, it just made me feel terrible from guys who supported Germany. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I felt very smug four years later, um, you know, when I didn't do the same thing to them. <laughs> but that kind of atmosphere, if you can control your watching situation where you're with a group of friends, then you don't have to face that kind of, that kind of uh, situation. Mm -hmm. So like one of my female friends from university is she's a Manchester United supporter and a Real Madrid supporter. Now I'm a Liverpool supporter and an Atletico Madrid supporter. So like even casual listeners to this podcast will understand how that could play out except that it didn't at all play out like that. We don't live in the same country anymore, so we interact primarily on social media, and she's always really lovely when I post about football. And I try to be really lovely when she posts about football, just this sort of supporting each other for being fans. So it was this supportive atmosphere when I watched with women that I haven't experienced watching with men. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that makes sense, right? Because I think that, uh, well, I, I mean, statistics have borne out at different points here. Uh, and I think just both of our experiences, right, that being a fan and female is kind of a galvanizing thing. And because we are oh, kind interesting. of... Well, yeah. So like, since it is a galvanizing thing, it's that you identify with the fact that she's a fan as much as you identify with, with the fact that she's a fan of certain teams. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. And so then that becomes um, that becomes sort of like a, that becomes a group mentality or a source of support because it's like, oh, here's another woman who watches football or soccer, watches football or soccer the way that I watch it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And so that becomes that that source of support. Which, I mean, because I think that the fact of the matter is, is that we are still pretty, I don't, unique is the wrong word, where um, we do feel kind of exceptional, right, in those senses. <laughs> I remember actually just speaking of watching international play, I remember in the year of 2016, I think it was, you and I and then another friend of ours were watching Spain at a pub in, in Canada, in Saskatoon, and we were wearing jerseys, you and I were wearing jerseys, and when we were walking down the street after, there was a fair amount of commentary from uh, construction workers outside the pub about the fact that we were wearing these jerseys, right? And it wasn't yeah. anything that was insulting or, I mean, I was kind of reticent to say construction worker in some ways because you kind of get a picture of what that looks like, but it was, but also the fact that it was pointed out at all, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't just something that was happening, right? Um, yeah, that it was noteworthy. Mm -hmm. So. Kick It Out and the Football Supporters Federation commissioned a study in 2014 and 2015 that looked specifically at how women were participating as fans. Mm -hmm. The report is called Fans for Diversity, Women at the Match. And um, if possible, I think I'm going to, I think we're going to put a link in the episode description so you can read it if you want to. Mm -hmm. um, it was based on survey responses of 2,729 women who regularly attend football matches and it was just looking at why and how they support and what their experiences are. It turns out the factor that keeps women away from football the most were in fact the cost of traveling to the match and the cost of the match itself which I'm sure would probably cross gender lines. Mm -hmm. 
62% of respondents did say that the ma macho atmosphere might prevent them from going altogether. Actually, that's a smaller percentage than I thought it would be. Yeah, me too. I was I was a little surprised. But that, I mean, if you think about it, that is would prevent them from going altogether. You know, like, it's not just like only 2% are bothered by it. Mm -hmm. Because the experience of sexism as an, at, at a match was widespread mm -hmm. in, this, in the survey results. 35.5% mm -hmm. um, of respondents had had a man tell them something like you know a lot for a girl mm. now that's a quotation know a lot for a girl um 21 were told quote you're only here because you fancy the players <laughs> they clearly haven't seen english players then burn <laughs> <laughs> well we'll talk about that a, a little bit later um but the worst statistic the thing that bothered me the most was that 8.5% had received, quote, unwanted physical attention mm. at a match, that they had experienced this at a match. Now, I think 8.5% is higher than you want it to be, but, but you know, I mean, it's a, tough it's a tough statistic because you don't want there to be any of it. Yeah, but that's actually not as high as it could be either, and maybe is not as high as it would have been, you know, 20 years previously. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this, this it, it makes me... I, I'm, I'm kind of going to choose a hopeful narrative to this, mm -hmm. as in I think it is actually getting better. Mm -hmm. And yeah. now I have to say the majority of female fans didn't have these experiences, you know, 8.5%. Mm -hmm. It does bear mentioning, however, that very likely the number of male fans of these matches who experienced, for example, unwanted physical attention was probably approaching zero. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to rule it out. Yeah. But you know it's i think i think that probably this is a very specifically female experience mm -hmm. no for sure and i also have to say my personal experience at matches hasn't reflected this and i have attended premier league matches and i have attended international world cup qualifiers i've been to craven cottage white hart lane fratton park i've been to the emirates there's more i can't remember all of them and i have been to an international at wembley and in no none of those situations did i experience this firsthand Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I do believe the women who responded. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, and here's my question for you, actually, too, is uh, were you with other women at those games or were you with men? Mixed company. Mm -hmm. Generally, I was with another, I was with at least one dude. Yeah, because I think that does make a huge difference, uh, just in general as a woman, right? I think that we've all experienced that in uh, various situations, right? Because um, I know at one point I was I was at a bar watching a show with some friends, and then after the male members of the friend group left, suddenly I was you know I was receiving attention that I was not receiving when my male friends were there, right? And so I think that does definitely make a difference. Um, but I think too, I mean, kind of following on all of this idea that you know you only. You only watch it because you fancy the players or this idea that somehow women are there because of men as opposed uh -huh. to there for themselves. I think that's something that plays out a lot in sports fandom in general. I remember, I don't know if you remember this, but it was a couple of years ago and it was in Saskatoon and there was a guy who had Daniel Agger jersey. Uh, on uh -huh. and oh, I do remember this. Yeah, near the university. And the thing is, is that somebody having an Agger jersey at all, considering he was a defender, is kind of unique. Somebody having an Agger jersey in Saskatoon would be virtually unheard of. But I remember because you were really excited about it and you wanted to talk to him about it. And the first thing I said was, Bridget, he's going to think you're hitting on him. Yeah, I do remember that. And I have to say, having an Agger jersey in Saskatoon. Mine cost more than my wedding dress. <laughs> yeah, in fairness, though, your wedding dress was very inexpensive. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So moving from seeing matches live to seeing matches at pubs with friends, um, that's more my experience. I've, tended, I've attended many matches in pubs where I'm the only woman, but I'm also generally the only Canadian or, and or the only fan of a non-English team. So I think my experience is slightly more complicated. Mm. I've had some really good experiences, such as this one gentleman my father's age who really needed me to know that it was important that I call my father regularly. Oh. Yeah, it was really lovely. Um, but I've also had some really gendered interactions. Like, for example, um, I had a guy grab my left hand to see if there was a wedding ring at a match once. Oh. Um, and there was. And um, when I went to watch a very, very fraught match between Liverpool and Chelsea at what turned out 
thankfully to a Liverpool loyal pub, there was one Chelsea supporter in the place and he managed to pick me out and ask for my phone number. And I kind of feel like, I don't know what he, like, what was know, he like, thinking? <laughs> Sorry? Sorry. What was he thinking? A Chelsea supporter? Bah. Well, it's, I mean, I'm not going to go because, because honestly, I think this is another thing that another feminine thing, which is I don't really feel the really intense rivalries between teams. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, I don't know if, you know, it was, I think it was because I was a woman. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, though, because if he was the only Chelsea supporter in the pub and you were the only woman in the pub, there is a certain kind of, um, there's a certain kind of safety in sitting with you because you were both kind of the odd people out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really fair. You know, I mean, also, I mean, him asking you for your phone number is a different kind of level of things, right? But, but that is interesting because you were both kind of the minority in that pub in different ways. Yeah, maybe I need to be more fair about that. That it was safer for him to sit with me than sit with the other. So it's the other, the flip side of it. My gender was a safety thing for him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, I think we've, we've covered quite a lot of territory. Um, I think it might be time for another break. So I guess I'll see you in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, in this section, we're going to just be talking a little bit about some of the uh, challenges that women fans face, women football fans face. And we're going to start off with the concept of gatekeeping. Um, gatekeeping is a concept throughout fandom, whether it's sports fandom or science fiction fandom or fantasy fandom. And it pretty much just means that the group of fans are sort of in a metaphorical enclosed area and your entry to that group isn't guaranteed. Like there's a guy at the gate and you need to say the right things and do the right things to show you're a real fan and then maybe you can be let in. I always think of that in terms of citizenship, actually. Like mm. in, with fan cultures, that women are not natural citizens, a lot of them. You know, like sports fandom, like music fandom, like um, science fiction, things like that. So we have to prove that we belong there. And usually you have to prove you belong there by knowing literally everything about something. Mm -hmm. uh, or depending on what it is, owning literally everything by someone, if it's a musician. Uh, the result of that actually is I'm often reticent to call myself a fan of something because like depending on where you are or who you're talking to, as a woman you have to prove that you have the right to call yourself that. The thing about that is interesting is I'm not sure if that's the expectation when men are speaking to other men as well, uh, but it's certainly not the expectation when you're a woman talking to other women about something you consider yourself a fan of. Yeah, in my reading for this episode, I came across um, a recent MA thesis out of the University of Regina by Catherine Sveinson. And she reported that many scholars have observed that men are gatekeepers for women when it comes to sports. So this is something that's recognized across the literature. Uh, for her project, she did interviews with seven women fans of different sports and found that they, quote, felt they needed to prove their fanship to male fans to gain legitimacy, end quote. Her respondents also told her that they actually sort of stockpiled information specifically so they could hold their own in a conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't surprise me. I think, I mean... I was a music journalist for 10 years, and I remember at one point being told in the middle of that, when I was a professional working in the industry, that I, quote, knew a lot about music for a girl. Yeah, and when that's what I made my living doing, was knowing about music. I mean, you had this term that you brought up when we, were, when we were first talking about this, this phrase, establishing legitimacy. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, I think it's that thing of... Um, of basically that that thing of you know of gatekeeping where you need to prove that uh, that you deserve to be there because as a woman you're not a citizen of fandom you are you need a kind of a working visa for fandom mm. and um, and that's kind of what your passport is right is knowing all of the things and I think that we've both experienced that at different times with um, with football right I know that one time was after actually it was after a music show I organized hilariously enough uh, <laughs> where um, it was talking about Leicester City and um, and you kind of got spoken over oh, yeah it was just after Leicester City had won the league right mm -hmm. there was something about it on one of the televisions in the bar and one of the people in our group asked about it and you and I started answering and this other dude who was sort of tangentially with the group or I think he was someone's friend he decided to talk over us and explain it all Ironically, of course, he mispronounced Lester. Oh, yeah, he said Leicester. 
So we got a little bit of our own back in our hearts, if nothing else. Yeah. But I think that's generally a thing that, you know, that if um, if you're interested in if you're interested in something that's more traditionally male, and I think you and I have both um, felt this in academia as well, because at different times we've both studied military history, that it's kind of you're kind of a novelty, but you're kind of cute right mm. for doing this and it's okay for you to know about it as long as you defer to the the real experts yeah because um i i experienced this sort of during the last world cup um where some some dudes i know who sort of present themselves as lefty and feminist were actually appalled that i was disagreeing with them i don't trust sensitive leftist men they're basically just misogynists who own calves <laughs> but these guys didn't outright say so of course but i could tell from their responses um, that they had made lots of assumptions about why my position was what it was and they clearly didn't see me as a peer but as someone to be educated mm -hmm. well yeah then that's where that idea of like needing to know literally everything in order to be accepted comes in right i think following spanish football has helped me with that to a certain extent though uh for two reasons and one is that it's there's not a ton of people in canada who follow soccer or football and the ones who do tend to be following the Premier League unless they have kind of a cultural reason to be following another league. So the result of that is that no one knows enough to question my expertise ah. uh, because I, it's the same reason I drink Spanish wine, honestly, because nobody knows enough about Spanish wine to tell if what I'm drinking is good or not. <laughs> but um, the other actually is that I you catch very little of the commentary unless you're wa watching a Barcelona game or um, a Real Madrid game because it's all in Spanish and my Spanish is pretty basic and so it tends to be a l lot less utilitarian than English commentators anyway like oh la pelota está a la derecha está a la delante ah hay ramos él es muy peligroso como un ansiedorioso ah la pelota la pelota la pelota dale 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 go <laughs> Buenísimo, magnífico, el hermoso, glorioso, anse que baila como Antonio Canales, or you know something like that. <laughs> my Spanish isn't that good, but most of my commentary makes about as much sense as that in English anyway. <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> well, I'm always a fan of calling Sergio Ramos a moose. Oh yeah, <laughs> but um, so this establishing legitimacy. So I came across the idea of authenticity, like an authentic fan, when I was doing like the secondary reading on this. And um, Svensson found that a lot of women felt like they were secondary citizens, kind of like what you were saying, mm -hmm. if they didn't express their fanishness in expected established ways. So, for example, they are perceived to be participating inauthentically mm -hmm. if they go to sporting events to socialize. But I don't actually personally get the difference between socializing and being part of the in-group, which is, you know, a part of being, you know, being part of the gang, that kind of thing. I don't actually get the, the discrepancy between the two. Mm -hmm. So the expected established ways of consuming a sport, in our case football, as from what I've observed, include knowing the history of the team's successes, what this particular win or loss will mean to them and by extension to you, knowing why they're on the field in that particular formation. Mm -hmm. It also means, I think, supporting a single team and maybe reviling your opponents and their fans. Well, and I think in some ways that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, about that idea that as women, uh, especially as women fans, the fact that you find another women fan or woman fan rather is more important than what team they support because it's um, it's a relationship that you can build with them. I know like one of my very good friends, she doesn't follow La Liga. Her family is Italian, so she follows Juventus. And I don't really know much about the Italian league at all, but I started following Juventus so that I could kind of support her in her football fandom actually interesting you know and so that i would know what she was talking about and be able to enter into that conversation right and so like as, as i said i don't really know much about the italian league but um to me it was important to kind of support her because she's away from her family and she doesn't have a lot of italian soccer fans around her yeah apparently being a proper fan doesn't include seeing the whole tournament as some sort of operatic shakespearean affair that is apparently being silly <laughs> someone a dude someone who I know got very angry at me once about this particularly. Mm, mm. I've also noticed that the team is what's important, not the individual players mm. uh, for men. Sveinsen refers to a bunch of scholars who have found that women are actually more interested in individual players and, and the sport in general than men are. So I'm guessing that men were more attached to their team. Mm. So like following their team was the big important thing, whereas the women were more interested in the individual players and the sport as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I know I've felt that myself. 
Mm -hmm. um, because I often have to learn more about a player before I'm happy for him to be a member of one of my teams. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if someone has sexual assault charges, that's completely unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And I do not like them. Mm -hmm. But also, if they're just a douchebag, mm -hmm. you know? Conversely, <laughs> players who have an interest beyond football are also cool. So like Simon Mignolet, who's a keeper for Liverpool, he has a political science degree. So I, I find that interesting and I like it when he's when he's playing. Mm -hmm. This is interesting, actually, because I, I read an article about this a little bit uh, ago on, um, oh, Arsenal player. Uh, I always want to call him Hilaire Belloc. Uh, Hector Bellerin. There we go. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Well, it was specifically about actually it was a it was a, it was a male commentator and he was talking about how, you know, in an era where transfers happen so quickly, you kind of have to have loyalty to the team, not to the individual player. And he was actually talking about being feeling like he was in a bit of a weird position because he was so interested in Bellerin as a player and he was so fat, you know, excited about him as a player, but at the same time very very worried, of course, that he's going to be moving to another team, right? Mm. And I think in some ways that's maybe more the norm for for female fans, right? Is that they have the interest in the individuals, right? And I know that sometimes certainly my interest in the individuals will supersede the team. There was one player um, Hernandez on Atletico Madrid and he was uh, charged with domestic battery and I don't care if he won a World Cup I don't care if he's an exceptional player I want him off my team yeah no I know what you mean mm -hmm. and I mean by the same token I think um, for example I love Juan Mata like I love him so much he has never oh, played yeah. for a team I didn't hate but I love him <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> yeah you know really I mean you know Real Madrid Chelsea and then Manchester United it's like he's not giving me much to work with but I just I really like him as a person I really love what he does you know uh, starting that whole that charity you know um, donating to help um, disenfranchised and marginalized people start soccer teams you know and just kind of how kind of bubbly and sweet he is and you know there's this great video of him I'm just gonna go off on one matter for a while because I love him so much uh, where the man united <laughs> um, the bus was pulling away and there was this um, this young man with his dad and I, I believe he, he was he had mobility issues I believe he had um, cerebral palsy and there's this great video that a fan took of Juan Mata like getting off the bus and hopping the fence so he could go meet this fan you know and um, because that because of the mobility issues the fan had not been able to actually get there in time and so the the fact that Juan Mata like took that time to meet this guy was just kind of it just speaks to something I really love and I just wish he'd stop playing for horrible teams so that I could actually cheer <laughs> him on as opposed to just, you know, following him on Instagram. See, that might not be considered um, being an authentic fan because it doesn't have as much to do with the team and it doesn't have as much to do with the sport. It has more to do with the individual. And, you know, we're kind of worried about compromising our authenticity. So those conversations may not come up. Mm -hmm. So like Caroline Dunn, whose doctoral thesis I quoted at the beginning, um, she found that in her research that women often don't react to sexist atmosphere at matches because they don't want to jeopardize their perceived authenticity. Mm -hmm. There are so many other things we police in ourselves to make sure that our authenticity isn't called into question. I mean, there's another sticky question, and Sveinsen addresses this, um, is whether women are true fans if they find any of the athletes attractive. Mm -hmm. This is actually something I did not want to talk about because ignoring this secures for me a place among male fans. If we aren't fans the way men are fans, we're not real fans, so I don't want to draw attention to the fact that I'm female. Mm -hmm. But if we're realistic about it, it's kind of ludicrous to expect at least a portion of heterosexual women to not find some of these men attractive. Mm -hmm. I can emphatically say that I've only ever had a crush on one footballer, but I resolutely keep that to myself because I'm afraid of the gatekeepers taking away my access pass. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. Like, I think it's... um. Uh, you end up in this kind of funny position, right? Because uh, honestly, I don't really care that much about statistics. I think that, well, you and I have talked about this outside the context yeah. of this podcast, right? Especially about uh, the book Soccernomics is that statistics only tell part of a story, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of, and it's an incomplete uh, picture of how how soccer actually functions. But in order to kind of maintain that authenticity, you really have to keep an eye on those things. So I know there's been times where kind of post-matches I'll, read an article that'll go kind of, well, you know, statistically, this is what happened in this game. And actually, even though this playmaker seemed to not be doing very well, 
this is actually what he did kind of you know and um and you kind of have to do that because if you're not saying well actually in this particular match Javi Alonso did this and this and this they'll think that you like him because of his jawline right uh mm-hmm. because he's you know also a model now and so but it, there is that kind of tension of yeah I am a heterosexual woman why can't I appreciate Alonso as a player and also think that he's physically attractive. Yeah, the and also bit is really important there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's so, both and, not either or. And then so the other side of this, that women fans should behave like male fans, the frustrating thing is that what many fandom scholars find is that women fans are always women fans, not just fans. All of these these scholars talking about this are, are basing this on gender performativity theory. Yeah, and so just um, just for context, um, gender performativity is the idea that what makes us a woman um, or makes us a man is based at least in part on how we choose to act and represent ourselves. So in psychology, sex is biological and gender is performed. So the way we perform our gender and the way we decide to perform our gender as an actor is to a certain extent theatrical. Um, so for women, one performance of femininity would be, you know, putting on makeup and um, people see that and then they realize, oh, well, she's a lady. She puts on makeup. Caitlin has long resisted any admonitions to behave like a lady. This is true. Uh, but what ends up happening then is when you're moving into a place like football fandom, where if when you represent and you perform as a woman, it's not entirely accepted. Your gender performance becomes, um, has to be mitigated by the circumstances that you're in. And so it actually stops being a positive thing to perform like a woman in that particular case. And this is changing within football, but you you simply can't leave your gender at the door when you go to a pub and watch a match. Mm-hmm. And some of Sveinson's respondents, that was the MA thesis I was talking about earlier, some of her respondents deliberately downplayed their femaleness in order to be taken seriously. Like they didn't wear ma- makeup, they didn't wear dresses, they paid attention to what drinks they ordered even when they were at when they were watching a sporting event. Mm-hmm. And uh, she wrote actually, quote, they could not be feminine and a sport fans simultaneously end quote Mm -hmm. well yeah and then you see that with when you see jerseys and things like that that they have jerseys that you can buy official jerseys that are made for women that are shaped slightly differently they're more flattering to women i don't know any female serious soccer fans who will wear one though and not because they want to wear the big boxy ones that don't fit them properly but because if they wear one that kind of identifies them as female they won't be taken seriously because those aren't the same as the ones that the players wear because obviously I'm going to be sweating that much and working that hard sitting in a pub drinking three pints. <laughs> but and then there's there's the poisonous part, too, that some of uh, Steinson's respondents um, reported being skeptical of other women fans and required these other women fans to jump through the same hoops before they took them seriously. Mm. Now, in my personal experience, I have been skeptical of other women fans, but it wasn't because I wanted to exclude them or make it hard for them to join. It was actually because I didn't want them to undermine my hard fought position. Yeah, exactly. She can take me down if she's only in it for some player's pretty face. Yeah, like there's kind of a collective thing, like we all rise and fall on all of our behavior because we're not really allowed to be individuals because we're still a minority. So you end up in that thing where you're like, I'm a real fan, I'm not like other girls. Oh. And on that note, I think we need a break. (laughs) Okay, we'll be right back. All right, so up to this point, we've talked about popular perceptions of women in football. We've talked about challenges and adversity that women face as football fans. But one of the things that we haven't actually talked about yet, uh, ironically, but also fittingly, given how we've talked about this, is what women bring to the table. And so taking this idea that has come up a couple of times, that women are only counted as fans if they consume football the same way that men do, uh, I wonder if when people are talking about how more and more women are following football, they're actually saying that more and more women are following football the same way that men do. Part of the reason that Sveinsen wanted to do her work is because she noticed that, quote, women's experiences are seen as deviations from men's. Therefore, we only know women through the relation to men, end quote. 
Mm. So is it possible to talk about women football fans without talking about men? I'm actually, it's funny actually, because I know when we first started talking about doing this podcast, that was something that I brought up that I just, I don't want to only talk about women as fans in relation to men as fans. But the more we got into it, the more apparent it became that it was basically impossible to do that because it is so male dominated. Yeah, I kept it in mind while I was doing research and I found it really, really difficult to try and pull it out and pull it apart. Hmm. And it's hard to cast off stereotypes even if you do look at women fans differently. Um, apparently, in 1985, the British government thought that encouraging women to attend football matches would counteract hooliganism. I got that information from a master's project by, let me just read this properly, Sarah Sekimore, Christina Freisdorf, Rochak Langer, and Ina Power. So what do you think about that idea? Well, I that's interesting, actually, because I can see that going one of two ways, right? I mean, if we're going to talk about gender performativity, which we have, there is that idea of women as a quote-unquote civilizing influence, right? That men aren't going to behave that way if women are present. But at the same time, I think that there is also another instinct of wanting to impress women, right? And one of the ways that historically men have impressed women is by acts of aggression and shows of ad- aggression. Oh, interesting. I thought you were going to go a different direction with that. Oh. Like uh, impressing women by behaving well. Yeah, or impressing women by behaving poorly. Yeah, okay. And it it does look to me a little bit like those unpaid emotional labors that women have to undertake. Mm. And I mean, this. there's an example of this more recently than 1985. Um, In 2011, there was a Fenerbahce match. That's a Turkish team. Uh, where men were actually banned from the match as a punishment. So, like, this match was played in front of an audience of around 46,000 women and children under 12. Mm. So, like, the fact that this happened relies on gender stereotypes. But the interesting thing to me is actually it showed me that women left to their own devices in a massive group are football fans the way anyone's a football fan. Mm. Well, how did they behave? Just like a football audience. Mm. They sang, they chanted, they all wore their kit. Like, it looked like any audience that I have ever seen on television. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, that is often, I know there's been studies on that, that a lot of kind of that per- perception of women is more gentle and as the... Um, as the kind of more refined sex, right? A lot of that has to do with perceptions, right? I remember reading about a a psychological study and I have, unlike Bridget, I have no citations. So please just trust I actually read this and I'm getting it accurate. They had a group of men and a group of women playing a video game that involved bombing things. And what they found is that when the women were observed, they bombed fewer things. And when they weren't observed, they bombed way more things because it wasn't that they didn't want to bomb the things in the video game. It's that they didn't want to be perceived as violent. Um, And then by contrast, men, when they were being observed, would bomb more things than they would if they were by themselves because they wanted to be perceived as aggressive. Wow. So perhaps predictably, one of the arenas where women are seen as fans in their own right are as marketing targets. And this is something that was mentioned in a couple of the sources that I read. Mm. That doesn't necessarily mean that women fans are respected. Um, It just means that they're another market. And Svensson found some organizations that relied on stereotypes. So there were some that did a really good job of just having a ladies' night where women could enjoy their chosen sport. Mm -hmm. But uh, Svensson found an example of the Houston Astros ladies' night, which included, quote, bling and glittery things happy hour and, quote, complimentary beauty treatments, Mm. which I think is along the lines of I've seen these sort of pink colored low-cut versions of Premier League jerseys. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many of those sell, actually. I mean, that, that'd be an interesting thing to find out. I, she, didn't, she didn't have the stats on that. Mm-hmm. No, I, just, I think that's, to me, that's very funny uh, because it's kind of identity politics aside, capitalism will always, you know, capitalism doesn't care as long as it can make money. Yeah, so it makes me wonder because then those things would succeed or fail based on the market demands. Mm-hmm. But there are, of course, other women who feel the way we do, that women fans are fans. And I found these two great projects. Um, One of them is called Girl Fans, and the other one is called This Fangirl. Um, Girl Fans is a project by Jackie McAssey, who's actually a lecturer at Liverpool John Moores University, and she's a Liverpool football, football club supporter. 
And she started out um, during the 2013-2014 season just photographing fans, like she wanted to capture the atmosphere. And this morphed into photographing women fans when she realized that the media representation didn't reflect how many women were actually at the matches that she was at. And her work eventually became a fanzine, which is called fan, uh, Girl Fans. And she's got a website at www.girlfans.co.uk. Oh, interesting. Th this fangirl is a more recent project. It was launched by Amy Drucker and Laura Blake, who noticed that images of the female football fans they saw were really overly sexualized and didn't represent the female fans that she knew. And so to respond to that, Amy Drucker and Laura Blake attended matches across the UK every weekend of the 2016-2017 season and took pictures of real female football fans. And their work is online as well at www.thisfangirl.com. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I know that uh, this is something that's come up again. Sorry, my background is still primarily in music journalism about this mm -hmm. idea that um, that kind of women fans are generally kind of ignored or undermined or put in a box. Because I think it's interesting that, for example, the Beatles would not be the Beatles if it wasn't for teenage girls. Yeah. You know, uh, and they ended up being arguably the most important act of the 20th century. And they never would have got there if it wasn't for a bunch of teenage girls, right? But yeah. those teenage girls are consistently undermined as kind of crazy. Dismissed as hysterical and ridiculous. Yeah, and whoever says that uh, has obviously never been to a sporting match if they think that that's any different than what happens at a Premier League game. Yeah. And these projects, I, I recommend that you go check them out because they're just so amazing. Like there's a little girl in a tiara and an Everton shirt and an older lady in a long red dress coat, red shoes, red hat, red handbag and a Liverpool scarf just covered with Liverpool pin badges. <laughs> it's so great. And, and there's one Hull City one where it's three generations, where there's a granddaughter, a mum, and a grandmother, and they're all wearing Hull City scarves. Mm. I just, I, I feel like both of these projects are contributing to moving the discussion on from, look, women watching football, how peculiar. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that makes sense, though, because now I'm thinking, I haven't, you know, I hadn't thought about it particularly, but certainly when you're watching a match, if they pan to a female fan, it's always, it's always a pretty young woman. And it's always just yeah. one of them. Or like a, a girl in a bikini top that's in, like for the World Cup, a girl in a bikini top that has the, the country's flag on it or something. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Like very, very specific, very, very kind of ghettoized. Well, interestingly, in this last World Cup, um, FIFA sent instructions to broadcasters to not focus on pretty girls in the audience during sort of pauses in play. Oh, for any particular reason? Uh, I for for the reasons we're talking about, I as, I assume. I mean, I didn't. Ex I mean, I found it interesting that FIFA would do that. No, I mean, no, it certainly is interesting. But I would be curious to hear about their motivations. Okay, so I think we've we've covered all of our all of the points that we wanted to bring up. Do you have any last wrap up words to say? I think actually, for me, my hope is eventually that women football fans aren't an anomaly that need to be talked about as a subject in themselves. Yeah. Um, that would be, I don't know how far we are from that, but I hope it gets to the point where it's just culturally something that's okay. Uh, as we've talked about in this podcast, I mean, statistics bear out women do watch football. Women are interested in football. Uh, women are a substantial share of the market, but we are not treated that way. Yeah. I really wanted to do this specific topic because I wanted to talk about women fans, but I also want to create a situation in which episodes like this aren't necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we'd just like to finish uh, by saying thank you so much for listening. Thank you for doing a deep dive on this topic with us. And uh, we'd also like to thank uh, Bella Hutman's Purse for giving us this opportunity. Yeah, and thank you to Julian Amarante and Steve Sutherland, um, the regular hosts of this podcast, for handing us the reins for this about 60 minutes. <laughs>